Алекса, стоп, 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 So welcome to Alexa Stop. I'm Jimbo. Sitting opposite me is Mr. Robert Belgrave. How the devil are you? Never been better, Jim. Never been better because today I'm sitting opposite you indeed, but I'm sitting opposite you on a sofa rather than in our traditional studio in the Algarve in Portugal. And what a beautiful day it is too. It's very sunny outside. Uh, we could be at the beach, but instead we're inside recording Alexa Stop. I'm not quite sure why we're doing that. But um, and you are a vision today. You're, you're topless in front of me with some neon leopard print shorts on. I am indeed. Thankfully, just about concealing myself. You are just about. But if you get too excited during our discussion today, which you might do because there's loads to talk about, then who knows what I might be exposed to. Quite. And, uh, and here we are with our holiday special. I know, seven months ago, we uh, started this adventure, making this podcast. Who'd have thought it would have ended up with us now holidaying together and still recording episodes? It's been a, it's been a, a roller coaster and a, and a good one at that too. Now, this isn't any villa. No, no, it isn't. This is Casa Felipe, the well-known Casa Felipe to those in the digital industry, owned by none other than Phil Jones, who is also our guest for this month. Uh, yeah, so uh, excited to talk to Phil a little bit later on. Um, I guess... Uh, well, what can we say about Phil, about what he does? He organises some events called Podge, which you'll talk about later. He does indeed. He's had an amazing career. Uh, started off in the early days of digital, well, before digital, I guess, as a typographer, and then kind of saw the internet appear and, and well, just has an amazing life story, which we're going to hear later on. And he chairs the judges for the Drums Daddy Awards and he all does. kinds of things that he does. So we'll talk about all of that later. But I suppose, really, it'd be good to have a little bit of a chat about some of the things people have said to us this month. Yeah, we've had some contact, haven't we, this month. So there's been contact from the outside world. The amazing episode we did with Nick Earl last month covering Hyperloop got a lot of interest and we had some, well, people just saying, oh my God, this is incredible. I thought this was all nonsense and now I'm convinced uh, from, well, quite a number of different people. But we've also had none other than Sarah Matthews, who's got in touch, who, inspired by a previous episode of ours, has decided to put her iPhone in black and white mode for a week and is doing a bit of an experiment on herself to see if it changes her relationship with her phone, whether the, you know, having what previously would have been red notifications in grey makes them quite so appealing. Uh, 24 hours in, she says emojis are much less interesting and that she's really noticing how sort of aggressive the colouring is on adverts on like billboards and on the tube, which I thought was was intriguing. So Very interesting. We're yeah. looking forward to hearing more about that experiment. And, and of course, one of the tweets that we, we saw uh, this month was just highlighting that Nick's interview starts at 30 minutes, which suggests that some people might want to skip our part, Rob. Crazy talk, Jim. Crazy uh, talk. Who would, who would want to do that? I think, you know, hopefully they gave us a chance. I, I would hope so. I mean, you know, trains flying in tunnels is, is one thing, but listening to us banter, talk, banter, bit of bit of playful chat. And talking about, another. of our banter, there's a couple of things that we need to do some fact checks on. We do. We have some corrections to uh, print, I guess. So uh, we've been talking about Quantified Self for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And you shared your DNA test with us last time. I did. And uh, we we discovered that I have the gene that means I'm, um, I have a slightly increased risk of uh, getting AMD, which we thought meant that I might lose the ability to use my muscles and walk. But uh, Nigel Gwilliam from the IPA informs us that actually that means I might go blind. So something to look forward to. <laughs> uh, Good look pun there. See what you did there. Yeah. 
And our second update is more of a clarification, which came to us from Louise Bliss, who's with us on our holiday here in Portugal, who wanted to confirm that I do indeed have a hairless back. Which is what your DNA test told us is exactly how it would be. And I can confirm, and Rob is turning around slightly now, that he is as smooth as a smooth thing. He's as smooth as a vodka luge. (laughs) But not quite as cold. But not quite as cold, because it's very warm outside. It is. Um, So, moving on. Do you think it's time for the news? Let's do the news. It's the news. It's the news. Oh my goodness. It is the news. And so a bit of a transport update following our Future of Transportation special last month. Have you seen what Mr. Elon Musk has been up to? He's got a fancy new video. He does. It's beautifully made. I mean, all CGI. CGI. (laughs) We said that together. We did. It's almost like we're getting to know each other. Um, So yeah, Elon's company SpaceX out of nowhere announced a rather revolutionary new idea, which was to use those fancy rockets that they've been building. The reusable ones. The reusable ones, yes, those ones, that can go up and drop things off at the space station and come back down and land. Well, Elon has proposed that maybe they could do city-to-city transportation. So I think the, the video shows London to Shanghai in 30 minutes via orbit. It's kind of like using the principles of a game of snooker to do international travel around the Earth. Tell me more. Well, you know, when you've got like a pot on and you've got to think about the angles, I imagine you just fly up straight, adjust the angle a bit and fly back down and you find yourself in Shanghai. Kiss off the pink, down <laughs> yeah. in 30 minutes. Yeah, snooker loopy nuts are we. <laughs> We're all snooker. Uh, <laughs> loopy. <laughs> Can't wait. So um, love Elon, love SpaceX, and I uh, quite like the idea of flying to Shanghai in a rocket, personally. Well, you know, it's still 23 hours to to Sydney, isn't it, from the UK? And so, you know, anything that makes it quicker. I think in the article it sort of says it probably rough cost about 90 million a trip. (laughs) Maybe that'll come down. Let's hope it comes down. What do you think the trolley service is like? (laughs) Do you think the G&T is included? I reckon the champagne's on the house. I imagine it's pretty hard to be a space air hostess or host. Well, I guess it's zero gravity, right? So the champagne will be all over the shop. Yeah. Difficult. The challenges you're going to need to solve. Um, and also, our good friends over at Hyperloop One have released a new video too. They have indeed. So, uh, I, I mean, I think we're going to end up talking about Hyperloop One a lot in the coming months and years because, frankly, it's going to change the world, which is what this podcast is all about, after all. And they have put out a video for the first time of a two-way tunnel working. So a kind of uh, the, the little pod going down the tunnel one way and then round the loop and back on the other side, which is obviously a kind of key milestone, whereas previously it was just a single run and they had to kind of stop it at the end. Uh, so congratulations to Nick and the team at Hyperloop One. We'll continue to cheer you on as you break through all these amazing boundaries in the future. Keeping a close eye. And of course, our good friend POTUS has been getting busy with the space programme too. Indeed, or in this case, Vice POTUS, Mike Pence, who uh, gave a press release recently. Finally, after many, many years of what feels like a kind of dormant space programme, announcing that they are going to get, well, that they've instructed NASA to land humans on the moon and establish a more permanent presence on the nuclear surface, which some are referring to as a sort of petrol station for the journey to Mars, which I think is fantastic news. It's incredible and uh, interesting how when you're in that position, you can just instruct NASA to do something. Yeah. Hey, guys, build a base on the moon. And, you know, maybe they're just going to like walk in there and go, you know, that movie, Apollo 13, could you make another of those? With a, with a bit less terror and near death. Yeah. And, and by the way, can we stop off at the moon on the way to Mars? Because <laughs> uh, I want oh. a Mars milk. What a time to be Something alive. Like that. What a time to be alive. So let's move on. Let's keep this news going. It's been a big week for product releases. Yeah, God, it's all coming at once, isn't it? Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft, everyone's been up to it over the last few weeks. But I think maybe we could start with the Sonos announcement, which is also quite interesting. Something a lot of people have been waiting for for a long time. A Sonos Echo mashup. Sonos, for those that aren't familiar with it, is a fantastic multi-room audio system that makes putting music in all the different rooms in your house 
you know, a fraction of the cost of what it used to be 10 years ago to do kind of custom installed stereo. Sonos actually haven't really done much innovation over the last few years. The, the, the range has been quite static. And with the release of the Amazon Echo and other voice assistants, a lot of people were frustrated that they couldn't instruct their Sonos to play music verbally. I will say, uh, my business partner, Simon, this is kind of a CTO story, actually, which is hacking things up, has spent a substantial amount of time joining his Sonos to his Echo via a Raspberry Pi so that he can play Dolly Parton. <laughs> yeah, there's a f- great blog about that on the Manifesto website. and it, But, I mean, that was one hell of a project and was way beyond the... Uh ability definitely but frankly just the effort level that most people are willing to go to to make something like that happen so sonos has removed the pain and have announced an official integration with amazon echo and their next release of of the speaker which i think comes out at the end of october has echo functionality built into it so full voice control of your sonos system to the rejoicing of the tech community and do we know if that will then join up with an echo in your home as well Yeah, so I think they've sort of done a two-way deal so that all Amazon Echo devices will be able to do multi-room audio and and music. And the thing that's really hard about that is syncing it up perfectly because obviously if it's slightly out of sync across different rooms, you end up with terrible reverb, which obviously destroys the listening experience. So So imagine the scenario, you're walking through your home in your leopard print neon swim shorts and then all of a sudden you're listening to girls just want to have fun and it's quite not quite in sync in the two rooms you're walking between it would be devastating it's a terrible terrible first world problem that you've described there and so moving on with product releases google have had their big event made by google and they released a well a number of quite interesting pieces of kit a new chromebook a new a new chromebook is that the one you're excited about uh, well a, no, a new not phone really. is that the one you're excited about the phone's sort of exciting is it um, a new camera thing? Is that what you're excited about? What, the one that Apple have been told legally they're not allowed to refer to as a surveillance device? Yeah, you said that earlier, so I was like, what shall I call it? Shall I, I'll call it a camera thing. Yeah, so the Google Clips camera, that's actually quite interesting. So, I mean, the, th- the two I'd like to really talk about, frankly, the phone looks good, but, you know, guess what? It's another smartphone. I think the thing that is really exciting is the Google Clips, because it's just kind of a new segment, and also the headphones. Uh, let's start there. So Google have announced the Pixel Buds, which are a direct competitor to Apple's AirPods that have been very popular and successful. So in-ear Bluetooth headphones, essentially. Did you see what they did there? They called it the same as the phone. Yeah, very clever, that. See, what, see Amazing. What done there? Amazing. The Pixel Book, I think, is the Chromebook as well. Seems that they like the word pixel. But, you know, on the face of it, these are just another pair of in-ear Bluetooth headphones. And that's great. But no, they're not just another pair of in-ear headphones. No, they're not. Because the Babelfish is now a reality for Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy fans. Exactly. And what Google have said is that if you use the new Pixel Buds in collaboration with the phone, so you do need the phone, unfortunately, for this to work, they can do real-time language translation in 40 languages. Incredible. Which would have been very useful on this holiday in Portugal, given neither Jim or I speak a word of Portuguese. Take that and put it in your celebrity endorsement, Beat by Dre. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Unlucky, Apple. Unlucky. So, so if you buy a pair of these things, you will be able to go to Japan and listen to what's being said and understand it. Now, I think that the challenge that no one's really talking about is that you won't be able to respond. So it's only half the battle, but wow, I mean, just an absolutely incredible piece of technology. That is going to change millions of people's lives. Uh, The future is here. It's a genius piece of marketing. You have to buy two sets and two phones. So you have to (laughs) hand a phone to someone so that you can manage to have a conversation Uh, back and forth. I didn't think of that. That's a good good shout. And so the, the other product from the Google announcement that really excited me was the Google Clips camera because it's just a kind of new idea. So it's a a tiny little camera that you place in your house or you clip onto your person kind of as a front facing camera and it just perpetually records. I guess a little bit like a surveillance camera. So you can sort of see why that 
there's some suggestion and satire about that. But the idea is that it's very hard to capture the special moments in life. I think I've seen a response online from people who have young children who say they spend their lives trying to grab their camera to catch their child's first step or first word or whatever it might be. And so what this camera does, I guess it's a bit like a dash cam in a car. It just kind of constantly records and then allows you to to take out the best bits. But Google's AI system aims to do that for you. So it starts to learn about the faces that it sees regularly, including your dogs, your pets, etc. And then kind of curates the stream of photos for you. So a, a really interesting new piece of tech. And I think it'll be fascinating to see how many people find a good place in their home for that. Imagine that. You've been framed 2020 doesn't need Harry Hill at all it just automatically creates itself and uh, gets sent to itv yes the google robots will decide that the banana skin falls are are the best absolutely one more news story before we crack on with the show a piece of positivity yeah so this is amazing right so some fungus has been discovered in a pakistani landfill site that eats plastic and loves such a thing and really loves it yeah so uh polyester polyurethane makes a delicious meal for the aspergillus tuberculosis fungus i've made say that again rob (laughs) what's it called rather not but it offers a potential solution to our insane plastic problem you know i think people don't really talk about this very often but plastic is a massive problem in the world our oceans are full of this stuff and i think it's something like 90 percent of plastic that is created ends up in landfill within 12 months which is terrifying right so the fact that this fungus they've discovered uses enzymes to break down the chemical bonds in the plastic and then eats it is remarkable and may pave the way for a whole new method of waste disposal and uh, you know an, an incredible way to clean up our planet and our oceans. You never know, we might even save ourselves. Let's hope so. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, our, our life of a CTO. No story this month. Yeah, I'm afraid due to this being a holiday episode uh, recorded on location in Portugal, as you mentioned before, I've not had a chance to get a, a great story from my CTO. But the other thing that came out in the Alexa and Echo product announcement this month was the ability to do phone calls via the devices. Uh, and it's something that Google have added to their Google Home pods as well. And I understand that my CTO has been having great fun doing phone calls with our infrastructure manager at Wirehive using nothing other than his Echo. I get the impression they've been ringing each other just for the fun of it. And it occurred to me that actually they probably don't make phone calls very often. So it's a bit of a novelty to do so. Yeah, it could be the return of the phone call. (laughs) Brief hiatus anyway. Um, So uh, the other thing that we need to talk about now is something from the hype curve, something from the hype curve, something from the hype curve. It's all been about quantified self for weeks on end, but we've got something different to chat about now. Indeed we do. So no drawing of blood or DNA tests today. We thought we'd talk a bit about augmented reality, something that is kind of coming over the top of the hype curve now and, and is, 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 you know, almost at the point where it's going to reach mainstream. It's in the trough of disillusionment, but it's ready to fly out through the plateau of productivity. Yes, indeed it is. And so what's happened in this space? Well, um, AR largely will be driven by smartphones. And both Apple and Google, the manufacturers of the software used on basically all smartphones, obviously Apple's iOS for all of their devices and Google's Android, which is used by pretty much all the other smartphones on the market that have any kind of market share. They've both released updates to their platforms called AR Core and AR Kit, respectively, which make it much, much easier for people to make incredible AR experiences. And already we've seen over the last few weeks some quite entertaining deployments of that, but also some kind of magical and artistic ones as well. So just a couple we'd like to focus in on. The IKEA AR app is frankly incredible, and we're not sponsored by IKEA, but this thing is so cool, it's well worth downloading and having a play with. We're not yet sponsored by IKEA, but we do love their practical and uh, good value furniture. (laughs) We do indeed. If you work for IKEA, do give us a call. 
But um, one of the videos I saw, which was was fantastic, was the, the launch day of iOS 11, which is the, the Apple update that made this possible. Someone had laid out a, a full living room on a Brooklyn subway platform while waiting for their train. And what's fantastic about it is it's all perfectly to scale. The lighting on it looks very realistic, so you get shadows and stuff. And you know, if any, if you're ever pondering buying a piece of IKEA furniture, download the app on your modern smartphone, and you can you can place the piece of furniture you might be looking to buy in your room and see how it will look, which is just amazing. Do I remember when augmented reality was introduced to me conceptually? I worked for uh, a large charity, and we had a sort of IT department event, and uh, and it was. The examples back in the day, I'm talking probably eight, nine years ago, were all sort of faintly ridiculous. It was like a kettle boiling, telling you loads of data about itself that you totally don't need to know. Yeah, but to- ne- total crap. Now I think we've totally hit the point where people are working out ways that this is genuinely useful. And I think the IKEA example is a great one. And I think um, Airbnb have done a concept where uh, you record videos and have an AR experience describing how to use a home when you take over an Airbnb. Oh, that's cool. And so then, you sort of walk around the place as you arrive with your phone out looking around. And, and as you point at the TV, the landlord's voice says, oh, the TV's a bit unusual. You press this button to get Sky or whatever. Exactly. And it's more of a concept that they're experimenting with. They've not fully released it yet. But it goes, it points in the direction of here's a way that you can use AR that's genuinely useful. And I think the IKEA th- version does the same as well. Yeah, and for me, I think AR is amazing because it bridges that gap, right, and brings technology into the world around us. Our episode with Dan, where we talked a lot about how we need to get ourselves out of our phones and back into the real world, and also with Pete Trainer, sort of similar subject. And I think AR is the way that's going to happen. So really exciting. Um, And the the other AR story I wanted to cover was the launch of the Snapchat art platform, which is a fantastic concept. Have you seen that? I did. Have a quick look. There's uh, exciting inflatable balloons involved. Yes, there are. And uh, let's hope it goes beyond inflatable balloons in the future. So this is the idea that why not allow people to place works of art, you know, statues, essentially, maybe graffiti and things like that in the future in the physical world using augmented reality so that the things are invisible if you're simply standing there using your human eyes. But if you get your phone out or any kind of augmented reality device and, and look through your phone at the space, obviously using the camera in the back of the phone to kind of you know, bring in the space behind where you're holding the phone. I've explained that badly, but you probably get it. Um, you know, you can introduce statues, works of art, graffiti, and things like that. And we've mentioned Nigel already once on this episode, but Nigel William from the IPA is determined to create a colossus of Sir Tim Berners-Lee in Sheen in southwest London where he was born. And I think this might be the way we could do it. Amazing. I think the thing about this is what it starts to show is there could be a world that has so much augmented reality content in it that you start needing a search engine uh, so that you can show and hide different layers of augmented reality because we could just become so surrounded by virtual objects. It could get a bit cluttered, couldn't it? It could get a bit cluttered, yeah. And obviously the thing everyone's terrified of is adverts in that layer as well and that is inevitably going to happen so i think it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out but for now let's talk about art and the good news that that is uh, and you know yet another way how technology might be changing people's lives indeed and so uh, before we bring phil in there's one more thing that we need to talk about and that's retro tech something we'd like to bring back yes indeed this is always a, a nice piece of nostalgia in an otherwise very future focused recording for this episode, I wanted to talk about uh, mixtapes. Did you have any mixtapes or did you make any mixtapes when you were a child? I used to love making mixtapes, Jim. I was quite into hip-hop when I was a lad, and that sounds funny in a posh southern accent. I had some friends who had fantastic collections of hip-hop, and we used to trade mixtapes at school. So uh, On the mean streets of Oxford. On the mean streets of Oxford, wrapping it up. Initially, that was all on tapes, and, and you know, having a tape-to-tape player with soft eject was just a fantastic thing graphic equalizers, other such 
joyous things. And then the mini disc came out. Do you remember the mini disc? Uh, my good friend Kevin Harrington launched it in the UK. Oh wow! Well, um, the mini disc for me was my was really my platform of choice because obviously you could record in tracks, which made it much easier to do. Uh, and there was a kind of currency in in good mini disc mixtapes that used to go on in Oxford at the time. So um, I used to spend hours and hours curating beautiful mixtapes. What about you? Yeah, I mean, a big part of my childhood. And I think, you know, funnily enough, I think some of my earliest music memories were sort of little mixtapes that like were just hanging around my house of like, uh, and I used to record the top 40 every week and listen to it. I, <laughs> of course you, you did. You know I love pop music. So. <laughs> I do. You haven't heard Jim sing on this podcast yet, but one day you will. There's probably from the test recordings, you've probably got a load of stuff, haven't you, these uh, days? Maybe, maybe. You've heard me sing the jingles. Um, so, yeah, no, mixtapes, I think, are an amazing thing. I think in some ways it's a bit of a lost art, but then there's been a sort yeah. of a bit of a rebirth of it. And I, I certainly remember, um, you know, when Jamie T launched, he, he, he did a bunch of stuff making mixtapes. And some, so there is a sort of underground mixtape scene that still perhaps exists, but it used to be just a normal part of everyone's childhood. And the reason I thought it would be good to talk about this is that Spotify have released a new feature called Time Capsule. You know, God, we're plugging everything today. Oi, all of you people, give us some money to like have a better studio and stuff. Spotify is a fantastic platform. I've been a subscriber since the beginning and they keep adding more and more great features and Time Capsule is just another example of that. Using loads of different data points that they have on people and all their clever machine learning algorithms, they create this curated list which is kind of like the playlist for your life. And Jim and I have been listening to our time capsules while we've been out on, on this holiday in Portugal because it was released this week. And I think both of us have been quite struck by how accurate they were. Just, I, I mean, I've got pretty eclectic music taste and it, it, it's managed to cover the diversity of that pretty effectively. I mean, on the drive back from the supermarket, what did it take us through for you? I think we had some, some Queen and then some Gin and Juice by Snoop Dogg. And yeah, um, yeah it was great. Yeah, so um, what I thought is we could pick three from each of our lists just to share. So I'll go first. On my list is Enter Sandman by Metallica. Great choice, great choice. Love um, a bit of Metallica. Good job, Spotify. Um, could This Be Love by Bob Marley. What a tune. Bit of reggae, always great. And Back for Goodbye, Take That. <laughs> really underlining the eclectic taste of Mr. Bose there. How about you? Uh, and for me, Porcelain by Moby, which was definitely an iconic track of my childhood. Um, Very heavily licensed on all the adverts. Yes, indeed, indeed. What happened to Moby? He's relaxing. I think he actually has had an album out in the last oh, really? uh, year. Oh, sorry, sorry, Moby. Israelites by Desmond Decker, big reggae influence when I was younger big as well. Tune. Lots of reasons why that happened in Oxford, which I won't uh, explain more thoroughly than that on the podcast. And Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. What a tune. What a tune indeed. I had to hold everything back then not to sing that song. I could see it in your eyes. But maybe Let's Get It On is a great segue into our interview with Mr. Phil Jones. Phil, come on over. Let's get it on. <laughs> there it is. There it is. So uh, we will reset the studio and then welcome none other than Mr. Phil Jones of Podge fame to the Alexa Stop Improv Studio, Sofa. 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 Well, really, we're welcoming Phil to his own house, but uh, welcoming him nonetheless. Uh, yeah, let's hear what he's got to say. So here we are, Alexa Stop Holiday Special, coming to you live from Casa Felipe in Portugal with the man himself, Mr. Phil James. How's it going, Phil? It's going well. You can call me Felipe. <laughs> uh, seems appropriate when, when in Rome. It's beautiful here. Like the sun is shining outside. We've uh, closed all the curtains, come inside to record a podcast. So, you know, what can I you know. do? I know, but we've left the wives out there like soaking up the sun. So that's, that's fine. That's Keeping okay. everyone happy. And we've got beers. We do. Superbok, the uh, the beer of choice in Portugal, I understand. 
Very nice. Yeah. But I've, and I've gone for sag rays because I like to be different. Well, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to that. I mean, where should we start, Phil? I think uh, I'd love to just talk a bit about Podge. So many people know you for the legacy, I think it's fair to say, that is Podge. Where did it all begin? Podge was accidental. It was not It was not a plan. There was no plan that Podge would be any more than a one, a one-off lunch, and it didn't even have a name. So the name Podge came after the actual thought of doing something. But it was in the 1980s when I was at a business called APT. It was a tight business, and all my clients during the, uh, the 80s were design, uh, creative directors, designers. And towards the end of the 80s, it got really tough. And a lot of them, a lot of the companies that were my clients for 10 years were all struggling. And they were struggling with the advent of technology, Apple Max had come in and that was like that was a massive leap for most of them you know people who were used to doing everything on a drawing it on a a piece of board were suddenly actually having to do this themselves on a computer which like designers were not into apart from the fact they can't spell it's just that but the podge connection is just that all of those people were my clients and they used to send their work out to be done by us they didn't do it themselves it wasn't something that they did in-house they would send it out and we would turn the work around overnight a 24-hour studio and deliver it back to them at eight nine o'clock in the morning so when they got to their offices it was all done and uh, we sold our business and actually did really well the three of us myself and two partners we sold the, the business in the 1980s on a three-year earnout. And the earnout ended round about 1989 and 1990, and it coincided with a pretty shitty recession that was affecting all the designers who were my clients. And so, the the Podge connection, if you like, was early in the 90s. I'd I'd made the transition over to running a different studio. I'd sold my business, started again. And the early signs of digital were people asking for interactive CD-ROMs, and uh, they wanted something they'd done traditionally. Like the creative handbook they wanted to know uh, could we do the creative handbook but can we do it in the, with using new technology which then was not the internet which was which then was the an interactive cd-rom so what was previously print suddenly everyone wanted to do something a bit more yeah. modern and interactive and yeah not instead of but as well as right okay. so then they so they'd have a creative handbook that was still beautiful glossy the where it made its money because they sold adverts to people in this beautiful book but at the same time, they were thinking a lot of newer people are going to prefer to see this in a different format. And that format at the time was CD. But it was while I was, and this was early, this was 93, 94. So probably you, you had these little PCs that were starting to come with a CD-ROM at home. And some of the magazines maybe had the odd CD-ROM on as well. Some of the early ones. Yes, that's right. And maybe Encarta was getting shipped. That was yeah. the, the big encyclopedia that yeah. Microsoft used to send out. Yeah, these were big, and these were huge changes for the design world because mm. the designers they were not interested in technology in in any shape or form. So technology was bottom of the list of things that like attracted them. They were into something how how beautiful the paper was that something was going to be printed on, 
There's something magical about choosing paper. So I know this is a technology podcast, but and I've done it maybe, I've probably only done it twice or three times in my entire career where I've had the opportunity to choose paper for something. And it is a sort of magical experience. Yeah. Well, that would be the things they'd enjoyed doing. And all of a sudden they were faced with these challenges. And so they were all keeping in touch with me because because they'd known me 11 years in in a different world. They were keeping in touch with me in this new world because they thought I was someone that understood what they wanted and sort of people they were. But it was during that period I realised how many of them had suffered in the 80s and actually how many people who were brilliant at what they did, winning tons of awards, like uh, running fantastic businesses, but they actually weren't surviving. And there were several that went bust. Right. And there were small uh, design agencies that, small back room, went bust, Smith and Milton went bust, Michael Peters went bust, Rodney Fitch. And these were all household names. These were people that were my clients. And and I realized they never talked to each other because they actually, these guys, they, on, they, they only see each other at awards ceremonies where they're actually they're all on different tables. They're all there with their own staff. And when they won something, they're there with their client showing off what they've won. But they would never sit on a table with someone that was their rival because they would see no point in that. It's like, you know, you don't, you just don't sit down with rivals. And it struck me that actually if they had have sat together more and spoken to each other more, that a lot of them would have survived the recession. Yeah. And it just wasn't, it wasn't normal for them. So, so I phoned, there was no email in those days. It was phone or fax. And I phoned. Uh, six owners of design agencies and who I'd had a lunch with at the Oval Cricket Club four years earlier, like just a whole afternoon of watching cricket, getting drunk and actually really enjoying ourselves. And they were all rivals and owners of of design agencies. And I just said, wouldn't it be nice if we organised a lunch and if each of us invited one guest at the same level, i.e. own a level, and... I'll organise the venue. I'll actually choose somewhere really, really cool as a venue. I will pay everything, and then we split it between all of us. And that, as there'd be seven of us, there'd be fourteen. So, and they all thought this is like a really good idea. Let's do it. So let Phil organise it, and I chose Quaglinos. And Quaglinos was the hottest new restaurant in London. It was designed <laughs> by Terence Conran. Uh, it was a place that other other designers looked up to Terence Conran and saw him as a, a bit of a hero. Definitely. And there was a private box uh, in this Quaglino's at the top of the restaurant. I'd always wondered what it was, and <laughs> I'd never been in there. And and so I made inquiries, and they said it's a it's allowed out to hire, and you need a minimum fourteen people <laughs> to actually hire this box. Okay. Or a maximum thirty. So one side started to let the 14 know where it was going to be and the date. I think it was February 1994, this was. So so they knew the date and they knew that they had to pay their share, but I would sort it all out and just bill them all separately. And it was, it was then, although the means of communication was telephone, the phone just kept ringing because <laughs> people were saying, I've just heard about this thing that you're doing and you're getting all these legends together. Can I join you? And can I join you? And so before we knew it, we had 30 
but amongst the 30 were some of the all-time great designers that every, you know no one ever saw going out to lunches. Alan Fletcher was one of our first people who founded Pentagram. Marcello Minali from Minali Tassisfield. And there were all these people that I would tend to deal with a level below them when they were my clients. But when they heard that this little gathering was getting together in 1994, they all wanted to be part of it. So that was, uh, it was when I realized the quality of the people, I had to think of a name. Right. And the name Podge came out of the fact that these were all people that were used to branding countries, branding airlines, branding huge conglomerates. And I didn't want to do anything that would be, that they could tinker with. <laughs> and the name Podge was like, just being from Manchester, it was like, if you drink a lot, and you eat a lot, you put on a podge. <laughs> so I literally just called this gathering the podge lunch because it was meant to be a one-off. And it's like, the course during the course of that afternoon, everyone just had so much fun. They loved it. They, uh, there was, as I say, there was no emails. So I, I had to send out 30 copies of the bill <laughs> to the 30 guests by envelope by, with a stamp. So 30 people got it, then 30 people sent back their check, also by, by post. So Phil, that sounds amazing, but tell us what Podge is today, a few years later. So actually Podge 2017 is the same to me as Podge 1994. The, the actual format has never changed. There's the a no- few more of them though. There's the numbers, the numbers have changed, the numbers of people in the room, but the actual... The way it was set up, it was always set up to be like senior people that were all sat around a table talking to each other and none of them would be from the same company. They'd all be rivals of each other in one way or another, but they would all be at a level where they could have sensible conversations, help each other out. And over the years at the various podges, we've we've had two weddings, <laughs> two weddings, five children between them who just met because of the seating plan. Uh, umpteen people that have met at Podge and then joined together in business. Uh, in fact, you guys work with Adam Graham and Spencer and they met at a Podge. Hmm. I don't know whether you know that. That, that not was know that. A Podge. There were several agencies who've sold their businesses just because the person they were sat next to was someone that they got on well with during the course of the lunch. So, And there's no commissions. There's no like... Uh, Community, isn't it? You've created this kind of incredible gathering of people, and it, you know, like you were saying before, people come, come, they're open-minded, they're happy to break bread with their peers. It's not competitive, you know. They they share war stories, they make friends, they build business partnerships. It's sort of yeah. And there's so yeah, from from my point of view, I I can certainly say that I've sat next to someone that I've just in a small way that um, I was looking at employing someone. I saw that they'd worked for someone that I'd sat next to at a podge, yeah, and I sort of dropped him a line and said what's this person like? Um, yeah, and, oh, and, and, and it's, you know, that's a big help to yeah. a small business because finding out if potential hires are a, a good idea is a really makes yeah. a big difference. I'll say the thing that I don't think you can say, which is that, so I've been coming to Podge for what, four or five years. And I'm, the thing that always blew me away about it was that you don't have an ego about it. And I think that's the secret source really, because if you go to other events, there's always a kind of <sighs> fairly self-serving leader of the event who's sort of one way or another it's about them they make it about them they 
they give a sort of egotistical speech or there's a kind of profile there and it becomes very elitist. But the thing I've always found with you is you're so incredibly humble with it. And, you know, you've always got your family there around you, helping you organize it. And it just feels really intimate and very honest and like, you know, you're not doing it for personal gain. It's, it's always, and I, I, you know, I think that's one of the real keys to why it's worked and why it stood the test of time is because people f- feel privileged to come and like, it's an honor to be there and not that it's the Phil Jones show. You know, I think obviously yeah. everyone has a huge amount of love for you for what you've done, but it's not about you. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's something that's really helped carry it on yeah. and, and why it stood the test of time as well. It's, it's, uh, it's nice of you to say that. Uh, I, I think a big part of the reason is you need respect. So if you've got the respect of the the people who are going to to anything you're organising, you're halfway there. So with that first launch in 1994, I had the respect of all those designers tr- from throughout the 80s because I'd actually sold my business and I'd I'd done something that they all would love to have done. Some of them went on to achieve it and some of them didn't. But they all actually knew that I was one of them. I was actually someone that had started something, built it, done it the same way as everyone else does. And and I was someone who'd come out the other end successful. So when I suggested all getting together for lunch, it wasn't a loser. In their, in their minds, it wasn't one of their own. It was actually someone that was a little bit outside of their own. I wasn't a designer. They were all designers. I wasn't a designer. I was a typographer. So I was actually, in a way, it was someone who they had uh, they had warm feelings towards anyway and therefore but I was also no threat to them and and I think the other thing is I I, I tried to pack it all in on the 10th anniversary of Podge I I packed it all in and stood up at the Atlantic Bar and Grill and told everyone it was going to be the last lunch and that's because I was leaving my full-time employment and I wasn't going to have a PA I wasn't going to have my own studio I wasn't going to have any of my own creatives and it was just me. It literally was uh, just me and my wife, Babs. And I thought now is a really good time to pack it all in. 10th anniversary. And everyone who was in the room at the Atlantic on that day signed uh, the back of a Guinness poster that you guys have seen because it's here in... Hangs proudly in your kitchen just behind us, doesn't it's it? in the kitchen in Portugal. And it's actually, it's my le- it was my uh, leaving do for Podge, the end of, end of Podge. But what happened in the bar afterwards that uh, I saw and heard from loads of people in the room is that they were all saying, you you can't stop doing podge because none of us would ever do it. We love the idea that somebody gets us all together once a year and, and it's not going to be any of us because we can't stand each other. It's like, you know, they're all, we're rivals. You know, we, we're mates for one day when we come to your event, but actually we're not mates really. And they said what about if we all offer you all the services you need, whether it be design, artwork, secretarial, telephone help, you know, whatever you need, use us as uh, the people to do that. And that one of us every year will volunteer to take on the project. And that's how the tradition at Podge is that every Podge is a different theme, whether it's design, digital or sport but it's always designed by someone who's in the room. And the person in the room who does it one year wants to do it better than the people who did it the previous year. So you've got this monster that has just sort of got bigger and bigger and bigger every year because no one wants to think, oh, last year's was better than this year. So We won't, we won't ask you a favourite. 
It would be unkind for you to pick a favourite, wouldn't it? So we won't, we won't even ask you. So instead, I'll ask you a question. Um, so you touched up upon some of the businesses that had, had a hard time along the way, and you just mentioned your career in typography. Um, what do you think has enabled you to deal with the changes that have happened through technology across your career, where some people have perhaps struggled? I, there's no easy answer to that, but I am surprised that I, I actually don't know anybody else that's done it. I actually don't know anybody, and I and I know a broad range of of people. But I think because my my apprenticeship was actually in hot metal, which is as far away from technology as you can possibly get. So that every every character that you typed was a piece of lead, tin, and antimony. Those are the three ingredients. I mean, that is technology. It's just not technology from the current century. It's, like, a me- it's mechanical technology. Yeah. So this, this was a, a machine called the monotype caster and another machine called the monotype keyboard. And the monotype keyboard would punch holes into a tape. And the sequence of holes would determine what character that would be produced when that tape went through the monotype caster. And then the monotype caster would shoot this uh, a shot of metal at 700 degrees through a, a nozzle into a matrix and the matrix would have all the letters of the alphabet and all of the symbols upside down back to front and this thing would move around it'd be going left right and all around and metal shooting up into it and it and then you would create a line of type so then you when it's finished the line it will go to the second line and then the third line and then the fourth line and that was called a galley so you'd have a galley of type and then the galley would go into the compositors and the compositors would put it all together with images and then it would go off to be printed. So that was that was technology back in the 60s. And, and I did a five-year apprenticeship. And when I came out of the five years in 1973, I was what was called a, um, a journeyman. So the fact that I was a journeyman, it meant I could go and get a job. And I was a member of the trade union because you had to be. You couldn't. You couldn't do any of this without being a member of a trade union. Not as the same as the meaning of a journeyman in boxing, though. A different type of journeyman. The journeyman means you've you've passed your five years. You've come through. You've got your apprenticeship. You've you've done everything you can do. You're you're as good as anyone else at your given trade. Right. And in my case, my trade was monotype keyboard, monotype caster operator. I was a member of the National Graphical Association, the NGA, and. And I was thinking, God, I actually, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. But when you've stuck something for five years, it's the one thing that you know that you can go and get a job. But I actually fancied a break. I actually thought five years uh, on silly money. I think it was the first year was £5.13 shillings a week. The second year was £7.50 a week. And the third year was £9 something a week. And so it wasn't something you did for huge amounts of money my mates at the same time all my friends who grew up on the same council estate were earning double and treble that as joiners plumbers welders all the all the things that on a council estate you you look to be you know mm. some have a trade of some description um but they were earning more and their jobs seemed more exciting but so i um i decided to do something a little bit different and i went to work in a holiday camp for a season at Pontins Blackpool holiday camp as a blue coat. Really? It's like a children's 
We could do a whole episode on your time as a blue coat. Like, <laughs> now we're in my territory. Yeah, that's more like Jim's cup of tea. It's, uh, it's a miracle he's not broken into song so far on the episode, to be honest. We could have found some things to do a duet of. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. No, I was actually Uncle Phil, the uh, children's children's uh, entertainer at, at Blackpool in 1974. Wow! Which for me was fine because, uh, but by then I'd met my girlfriend, who is now, as you know, my wife Barbara, um, or Babs, as we all call her, affectionately known. And I was actually going out with Barbara at the time when I'd decided I wanted to go and do this thing in a holiday camp, and I told her what I fancied doing, and she said, "Well, I'll come with you and do." do it so she actually came up to Blackpool now she'd never been up north she's a real cockney bird she had she's got no plans whatever of living up north going up north and all of a sudden she ends up in the same holiday camp as me also as a blue coat that's so, a pretty northern experience right there yeah isn't it? It was, it's your, that's as it gets it was anyway uh needless to say it didn't last beyond that one season. And in fact, it didn't even last a season for me because I got fired. (laughs) And they only kept me on. Uh, I was fired for being cheeky with a few people, but they only kept me on because they didn't want to lose Barbara. And they all thought Barbara was so invaluable to the, to the running of this place that in order to keep her on, they forgive me as long as I stayed out of trouble. And the problem is I didn't stay out of trouble. So I went, did more of the same. And um, we'll get back to that another day. But uh, Barbara saved my life. <laughs> <laughs> not, for the, not for the last time, I'm sure. But so, um, okay, so you did your year or, or six months or whatever it ended up being as a blue coat. But then you found your, found your way back to the creative industry. So yeah, to, came back to London with Barbara. Yeah. And decided London rather than anywhere else because, because of, of, I'd met Bampson. So this was 1974. The area that I knew best was was still typesetting. So I, I went and joined a company in London called Watkins Repro, and then there was Art Repro, and then City Typesetters. But they were all what you would call traditional typesetters, and they were all doing things that I'd done throughout the 60s, and so I, I knew how to do them. It, there was no challenges there. At that time, new technology that was on its way was something like the photon pace setter. And that was a spinning disc technology where you could actually mix eight typefaces, which was, you know, if you think back to hot metal, it was one typeface at a time. Right. So a huge um, step forward. Quite transformational by the sounds of it. It was transformational technology leaps. So a liner type were working on something called a VIP, which was a variable input photo typesetter. And that looked really exciting. Photon uh, had this system, the the pace setter, uh, the keyboard companies, the companies like AKI, they were working on stuff. The Alpha Type were working on a new system, which was called a, a CRT, um, cathode ray tube. There were all different methods of producing type that allowed you more flexibility than metal. So then it became about the the difference between the ones that were more about volume and speed and then they're the ones that more about really high quality and about the spacing and kerning so you fell into two camps and the companies that were setting up in those days that were going over to new technology they were either in the camp of lot you know lots of volume or really high quality and less volume and i tended to be in the in the quality side of it rather than the volume so in 
1975, I got this big break to go and work at a company called Pace Setters on this system and found out that I actually really liked it. It was doing what I'd always done, but it just, there was so much more scope. And then in 1976, it was alpha type. And then uh, 1977, 78, it was working at an ad, famous ad setting company called Best. So all their clients were the big agencies, Jay Walter Thompson, Sarches, Publis, you know, all the, all the big agency boys. And there were two of the guys that I worked with at the time who thought it would be nice to set up their own business. And they were both ch chatting to each other about doing this for six months or more. And they both decided that in order for it to work, they needed a third person. And they both had the same person in mind, but they didn't want to tell each other who the person was. They both wrote a name on a piece of paper and that name was mine. So Ken and Derek wanted to then approach me to ask whether I would set up my own business with them. And, and we started our own company, which was called APT in 1979, just the three of us. And we went straight in, which was then the latest technology. So we had um, alpha type CRS system and it was all very very high quality and the work that we were doing was uh, it, there was a lot of attention to detail on the spacing of everything and the the cut of the typefaces that most is most agency people they only wanted to use a particular cut of the typeface so you couldn't just say to them times roman or universe or or trade gothic whatever the typeface was they want uh, but they'd want the Berthold cut of that face, or they'd want the linotype. But, so the type face became as really important. And then it's how that was typeset and what was, what was the spacing like. And it, this sounds all very boring, this now new world of digital. Oh, it's, just something people, it's an art that's been lost, isn't it? People just don't give it that much care and attention as they used to. And it's, it's fascinating yeah. hearing about how it was this incredible art form. And, and, and it was an obsession, wasn't it, really, for a lot of people? It, it was, it was right. an obsession to the clients. And it, was an, it became an obsession to me. It was actually it was the thing that I really loved doing, was taking a piece of work to a designer and saying, they, you know, that's, that's what you sent us and that's what I'm giving you back knowing that they were going to think what they got back was an improvement on what they'd sent. So the name APT, the name of the company we started in 1979, APT, came from the the letters ATP. And ATP was the linotypes. Linotype had developed something that which was completely new. It was the first in 1977. And it was an advanced typographic program. And it allowed you to automate the kerning and spacing, which was something that prior to that had to be done manually. So if you, if you, for instance, uh, had a, a word that ended with a Y, and so you'd have the shape of the Y would be, have an angle to it. So if you just put the full stop after the Y, where it would normally fall, it would look, the space wouldn't look the same as the space between all the letters because the Y would create a bigger gap so manually people like me would go in and just do that automatically every time you were typesetting you would automatically be doing all these clever little things and all of a sudden linotype brought in this technology which was phenomenal and it was atp so when we started because our an emphasis was on quality we just called our name apt 
and uh, my partner Derek also thought it was be good to be at the front of the yellow pages. So it was really that yeah. corny. Always pick a company name with A, certainly back then yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that was it. That's how we started our own business. And then we kept up with all of the technology, the, the changes that happened in technology throughout the 80s. But they were all manageable changes. You know, there were, there were questions of what typesetting manufacturer, what particular type of system they would use, whether it would be CRT technology or whether it be spinning disc or whether it be glass grid. You know, there was, but there wasn't a huge amount of difference between any of them. Although we all sold the fact that there was, there really wasn't. And it wasn't until the late 80s where the Apple Mac suddenly dawned. And, and I think that's when it was the Apple Macintosh that changed everything because then people within design agencies and ad agencies that were used to sending stuff out to be done by professionals, they suddenly wanted to be able to do that themselves and therefore make, make them more money from what they sold to their clients by doing more of the process in-house. And, and I think in answer to your question, why did more people not then go through that next transition? And why did I manage to go through it? I think at that time, they were all too protective. And I think the general mood amongst all my rivals at the time, I can remember the names now, Conway's, Apex, Alphabet, you know, Zeta, all these companies, this sort of general thing was that tended to be very protective about what they did and pretty much saying that designers are never going to be able to do it as well as we can do it. And therefore, even if they take the work away now, it will eventually come back. And that was their thinking. How wrong they were, eh, as, as it played out? Completely, completely wrong. And, um, and what I did is because we'd, we'd sold our business, I'd started the new company real time with a small group of friends, uh, in particular Trevor Chambers, uh, who was one of my APT staff he joined this company called real time and i went in there as managing director but we did the opposite we actually put our people into our clients offices so in 1991 92 93 94 instead of actually telling our clients or trying to put our clients off doing it themselves we were actually helping them buy the equipment we were putting the systems into their offices and we were putting our staff in to help their staff do some of the work and our staff do more of the work. And, and that's something fascinating because it's very much like, I think, a, a change that will be coming over the next few years as, as, you know, we've had countless amounts of developers in agencies, but actually there's a big shift towards systems that require a lot less developers. Um, and, you know, as, as, the, as systems sort of automatically adapt and do things for themselves, it, it's more the products that need developers and, and less each individual, you know, building a landing page now, there's completely visual ways to do that, which for the yeah. last 10 years has been done by a designer and a developer. So I think that's, it's almost like a, it's a pattern that happens again and again. And actually, you know, I, I, so when I think of craft around typography, for because of the age I am, I think about all my friends, we used to design fonts. Uh, yeah, um, which is obviously not real typography, but it's the sort of nineties uh, equivalent uh, when you had an Amiga um, or an Atari computer, and um, and then I think about printing. And there was a time um, I used to work at a regional agency, and the Indigo Press came in, which was um, a Hewlett Packard digital 
press, but yeah. which have affected litho printing quite heavily. And it feels like these things just come in waves and iterations and you sort of either adapt or you don't. I think that's pretty much it. But they were these people who are my rivals uh, at that era, the 70s and 80s, they could have done what I did. They could have all done what I did. And I think that some of them were, I, I was the youngest of the three partners. So my, my two partners were older than me. So when I actually made the move and sold the business and had ended my three-year earnout and bought this plot of land in Portugal where you guys, you guys are oh, sitting. sitting right now. You're yeah. sitting right now. <laughs> I did all that. Uh, I was 40. So 40 years old, you're really young. You think, you know, what's next? And for me, what's next was not typesetting. It wasn't typesetting in... It wasn't more of the same. It was something new. It was an evolution. It was looking to what was coming next. Yeah. And and what I did is for, I had a year's sabbatical in 1990 to 91. Uh, I couldn't work with anyone in opposition to the company I'd sold. I'd sold my company to an advertising agency and during that year, I did a lot of traveling and I went around the States, Chicago, Toronto, New York, uh, all of the big type hubs, the people who were the specialists in the fields that I'd always been in, and just try to find out more about what they did and how they were doing it and how were they working with their clients. And there was one particular company I, I met in Toronto in 1990 where they had the alpha type system inside their client's agency building and they were just talking to me about the the way that that worked and that the the agency people would take all the work into their this person or these individuals and then they would do all the work in-house for them and any work that needed doing overnight just went back to their their office and so by the time I came back to London and started real time in 1991, that was in my mind as being a really great way of working because you, you're never going to stop your clients wanting to make more money out of what they do and have more control. That's, that's unstoppable. But if you can go into each of them with a partnership where you say, the things that you're going to hate about doing it yourself are these you're going to hate the fact that all of your staff are going to take four or five weeks off a year holiday. And when then when they're not there, you've got to replace them with someone. You're going to, uh, you're going to have to have typeface licenses for thousands and thousands of fonts that you may never use, but you can't not have them there because that's what it's about. You're going to have to uh, have an overnight facility. No, no matter how many people you have in-house, it's going to be seasonal. You're going to have times when you're going to be really, really busy, times when you're quiet. And those are things I was going in saying, what about if we partner on it and we share, we share the profits? So I'll put my people into your building. We'll buy all the equipment, we'll, or lease the equipment. We'll buy all the typefaces. We'll do all the training. If somebody's on holiday, we'll replace them for the duration. And why don't we do that as a partnership? Uh, you throw all your work into it. We will share the profit and loss with you so you can see exactly what the cost of running your business is and split the profit down the middle. And that was a, life, that was a game changer. So that was for me, that was because uh, by then my other two partners weren't with me. So then it was, so I was 41, I think then. And then it was doing something a different way where it wasn't by committee. It was just saying, this, this is something I think would be a great idea. Let's do it. That turned into be amazing because 
what happened then, the spin-off of that was that in the early 90s, when they were starting to get digital inquiries, the agencies from their clients, they were going to the people that they already trusted and saying, you know, could you help us with a CD-ROM? Could you help us with, like, not, not the internet then, because that came a little bit later, but it was all those things that weren't traditional. And we just said, yeah, you know, whatever you need, we will do it. And then you become the people that everybody goes to. And then in 90, 1996 was the breakthrough year because digital, digital was there and people were talking about websites and, but it was really not, not many people had websites. And I, uh, through football, which is, as you guys know, is my, my passion, uh, through football, I'd been working with a company called London Graphics and there was an England football shirt. You've actually seen it because it's downstairs at the villa. There was an England football shirt signed by the, all the England team in 1996 for the Euros and it was being auctioned off or raffled off and it was an a, event that Canon was sponsoring and it was Canon who was sponsoring this uh, the football that actually had the shirt signed by all the players and I, I won it. But they presented the shirt to me in my office and the guy that presented it was a guy called Alan Luck. And it, my luck was in when I met Alan Luck because he actually, he was about six foot six. And after he'd, presented, after he'd done the photo shoot, handing me the shirt, he said, what do you guys actually do here? And um, I started to show him around, told him what we did in the company. And he said, have you ever done a website? And... I said, oh, yeah. You know, like, Shaking his head currently. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course we have. You know, I was thinking, have we actually have done a website? And he said, no. He said, I've just got the job of building the first ever website for Canon. So this is Canon UK, one of the biggest brands. And uh, he said, if, if you could help me write the brief, he said, I'm going to have to put it out to tender, but I'll just make sure that you're in the tender. And, and we did. We helped them write it. And then we, Trevor Chambers and myself and Peter Peterson, a little gang of us that were there, we went and pitched to them and won Canon UK. So, so there's a couple of things. And we've, we've been talking for ages, Phil, so we're going to have to wrap, wrap up. I'm let you go and catch a plane. <laughs> You'll miss your flight otherwise, as Actually, much as we'd love I'm, to keep I'm going. I'm leaving in 10 minutes. <laughs> there's a thing I can say about that is, is that, so what I've taken from it is saying yes and working out how to do it seems to be a theme. I can also say that my team are pitching to Canon tomorrow. Wow. Are they really? Yeah. Full circle. Amazing. Well, from Canon UK, we got Canon Europe after that. And it was just... I'll tell them that's what they've got to do. Yeah. <laughs> but then then um, we picked up diesel. We did everything online for diesel. But the diesel lead came through Canon because the guy working in Italy at diesel said, just seeing the work you've done for Canon, it's brilliant. If you can do that for a ship brand, think what you can do for my brand. <laughs> so we've picked up diesel and it was so but it, i think flare of fashion yeah i think enthusiasm hiring really good people creating creating a vibe in a company where everybody wants to work there and stay there in that period when it moved over to digital everyone was trying to steal our staff and take our best people and that's it's not when things are quiet when you need to worry about people going it's when everybody needs them what else is growing as well and then yeah, and, and that's when it's more than money and it's more than people going into work for a salary. It's where you've got this sort of X factor, something a little bit special, 
and that's um, that's what I think made real time really special in the 90s. And a lot of the people who now come to the digital podges are people that were young lads just starting their own agencies in, in 96, 97, and now they're all multimillionaires, quite a few of them, actually. So... Well, on that note of success, <laughs> yeah, on, on multimillionaires, um, wow, that felt like an amazing journey through the 80s and 90s from typesetting to digital, podge, stories. Uh, any final thoughts, Jim? My thoughts are that we could talk to you all day and all night, Phil, and we'll, 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 we've given Rob a tough job editing this. But okay. <laughs> um, thank you for your time and, and thank you for inviting us. You're welcome. And this is on the day that Monarch Airlines has gone bust. Barbara and I are on our way to Faro Airport, and thank God we're with EasyJet. So, <laughs> and, and you won't hear that said very often. But, <laughs> Safe but today, today everyone's happy about EasyJet. So, exactly. Uh, so, see you guys. Enjoy Casa Felipe. So that's it. Uh, episode eight of Alexa Stop, all tied up and done. Um, a few things that we should say. Why not get in touch with us on Twitter? What's our Twitter handle, Rob? It's Alexa underscore Stop. Do get in touch. And there's some big news. There is some big news. We are recording our very first live show, Alexa Stop Live, and we'll be doing that in late November in the Shoreditch area. So if you'd like to come, use that Twitter handle, drop us a note this month, and uh, you can be in the audience while we do this live for you. Yes, indeed you can. There'll be beers. We've got some fantastic futurists joining us, hopefully plural. We've got at least one of them committed already, uh, and we're going to cover all kinds of amazing things about how technology is changing people's lives, trends to look out for in 2018, and some of the amazing stuff that's coming down the line in the years ahead. Sweet. Time to hit the pool. Splash. Thanks for listening. <laughs>